Hey, welcome back to Brogan's Run. This is Neil Brogan. Thanks so much for tuning in again. I really appreciate it. Uh, so this episode is the first part of a conversation with the writer Wendy Erskine. Uh, from Belfast, Wendy Erskine has been called the greatest short story writer of her generation by no less than David Keenan. She just published her second collection of short stories, Dance Move, and I was really lucky to be able to chat to her last month around the time of publication. Wendy has kindly put together a short playlist to go along with this episode, and I'll post that to the podcast link tree. Uh, we did start our conversation by talking about the first track, but as you'll hear, we then veered off in various directions and tangents. We do circle back to it in part two of this conversation, which will be available next week. This week, we discuss Wendy's writing methodology, how music inspires her work, her ideal word count, uh, the complexity in her depiction of characters, and how to end a short story. Along the way, our conversation takes in Chekhov, Throbbing Gristle, Mark and the Mambas, Raymond Carver, and George Eliot, among many others. So let's jump in. This is Wendy Erskine. playlist and it's stuff you were maybe listening to making when you were writing dance move or just stuff that you're thinking of at the minute or what's behind this wee playlist do you know what Neil it's it's not really what I was listening to whenever I was writing because I never really listen to music at all whenever I'm writing because I find that what happens is I get too caught up in the in the mood or the sentiment or even just the, the beat of things. So I yeah. normally just write pretty much in silence, but music's quite important to me. And I suppose as well, it's not just music, but just general kind of pop culture and uh-huh. the sort of uh, the sort of arcana of, of music, I, I suppose, I just, I just really like. And so one of the stories in this collection is called Nostalgia. And yes. it's about a guy who... You, yeah, um, you know the one I'm talking about, that one, Nostalgia? Well, that's, yeah, I was yeah. going to say, I was thinking, is Amsterdam, Jack Burrell, is is that some kind of reference to that story particularly? Because I was thinking, that when I was reading that story, I was like, what, who is this maybe referring to? And it's clearly not Jack Burrell, but, you know. No, no, I was I was just trying to, I was kind of thinking, so in this, in this story, what, what happens is that this guy has been a sort of pop star in the 1980s, and it's, say, pop star, I mean, that would probably be overstating it, but he had a little bit of fame, and then he decides that it's not going anywhere, so he moves into IT, basically. Um, and then in more recent years, he gets this request to go and perform a very obscure song of his at a sort of paramilitary um, battalion 
centenary or some some sort of celebration. And so he's trying to access a past version of himself that he he still finds attractive and so off he goes. So what I was imagining was that he was a kind of a 1980s sort of troubadour of the sort of Mark and the Mamba style, sort of a sort of Scott right. Walker character who'd been really influenced by Jacques Brel. And also as well, I was using the phrase nostalgia de la boue, that little mm. phrase meaning, you know, nostalgia, nostalgia or, you know, feeling nostalgia for the mud, basically, for the um, the what is low and, you know, kind of depraved and all the rest of it. Um, right. And so I was wanting to use that little French phrase. And so I just thought, right, let's just make him this kind of Jacques Brel character that used this little phrase as the lyrics in one of his songs. So he's kind of the opposite to it, because I kind of say about this this guy, Drew Earl Haig, this character, he wasn't sort of 1980s Red Wedge wanting to sing about, you know, that sort of evils of Thatcher's Britain. You know, this guy mm-hmm. was sort of wanting to look at kind of more existential um, issues than than that, really. And so he would have been in a different kind of a camp. So um, that right. was why I picked um, Jacques Brel and Amsterdam. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. And then that story then is kind of about him coming over playing for this paramilitary commemoration and then finding out afterwards what they're commemorating and I, I don't want to be I guess we shouldn't get into spoilers for these stories or whatever but yeah. it kind of there's two things occurred to me then about the story the first thing was his kind of ignorance you know he's coming from somewhere else that he's coming over and he doesn't really bother thinking too much about what he's getting involved in and mm-hmm. that I can kind of I've seen that before you know People come outsiders coming into a situation and not really having a feel for the nuances, and then it mm-hmm. sort of coming back to you know burn them afterwards, you know. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's when when you're kind of uh, your art, you know, something you've made is taken up by people who you don't really agree with. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So people who yeah, it's a bit like the Smiths. Whenever like. David Cameron said he liked the Smiths and Johnny Moore got really upset about it and said, you're not allowed to like the Smiths or whatever, you know, trying to sort of backpedal when you realize that your art is out of your hands. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that was totally, that was totally what I was aiming for as well. I mean, there's a couple of things in relation to that story and that's definitely one of them that, um, you know, when you create something, you you have no control really over how others might respond to it or in fact, how others might, um, use it so yeah I was I was thinking about things like that I was thinking about the Smiths thinking as well about Springsteen and born in the USA and how right that was that was that was repurposed um yeah and to serve a sort of ideology that he wouldn't have agreed with I was thinking obviously as well of Tina Turner simply the best and how um <laughs> simply the best um, has taken on a different kind of um, life or has had a new dimension yeah. to it. So, yeah, I was absolutely thinking of those things. And I was thinking as well of um, there's a writer, Gordon Byrne, and one of his books was about the singer Alma Cogan, who actually died. Um, but he pretended mm. that Alma Cogan carried on um, carried on with her life. And um, at the, at, I don't want to do a spoiler, but... Alma Cogan's music, um, basically that 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 guy drew Earl Haig as a very much Alma Cogan by Gordon Byrne moment at the end of that of that story, um, right. and something similar. Right. 
also happens there. Um, I don't think I'm spoiling things too too much by uh, by by saying that. And I suppose what I was also looking at as well is you're absolutely right. He's not aware of the nuances, and he's kind of in some ways quite a sort of a. He's somebody there that's on a bit of an ego trip or wanting to recapture a sense of who he was in the past. And so he's quite complicit in it in the sense that he doesn't do too much investigation and is really kind of... uh, is really kind of swayed by the thrill that he thinks it's going to give him and by the access it's going to give him to a past version of himself. So, yeah, yeah. You're, abs- you're absolutely right. You know, he's, his, his research is deliberately kind of scant. And then it's very convenient for him when he comes across an article which suggests a kind of a relativism that um, people perhaps that are far removed from situation um don't they, they shouldn't be judgmental about people who acted certain ways in certain times um right that's useful for him, for him as well in letting him come along to this uh to this celebration without feeling too much guilt initially yeah it allows him to sort of indulge himself in a way but yeah. i kind of yeah um maybe i don't know I'm reading too much into it or whatever but i i kind of feel like it's not really that judgmental of him that story like you still have some empathy towards him when you're reading it. You, I don't. I don't feel like he's made to look. It's funny. Like, do you know what I mean? It, he is kind of <laughs> at his expense, but at the same time, you you don't feel like. I mean, I didn't feel like uh, he was a terrible person or anything. Reading that story or anything, I felt like no. That's um, good. That's that's really really good. Because that, that's that's basically always what I'm really aiming for. That I'm. It, it's it's kind of trying to keep that balance that that, that mm-hmm. people are very very flawed make very stupid decisions at times make decisions that are not the right ones to make but at the same time people aren't alienated from them and can see them still as you know fairly sympathetic characters and he's not but he's by he's by no means a, an inverted commas bad person. I'm I'm not interested really in writing right. heroes and villains at all. Yeah. Um. And you're absolutely right. He's just not a he's just not a bad person. He's just a person who you know remembers what he was like in his youth and would kind of like to access mm. that again. Um. And kind of just quite interested, I suppose as well, Neil. Just that whole midlife crisis idea because I can remember hearing yeah. Viv Albertine from the Slits whenever she was talking about whenever she was sort of promoting that book the her her memoir the first one the boys 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 one yeah um she was talking about how people are very judgy about midlife crisis crises as though like something really mm-hmm. pathetic and sort of cringy about it but in a sense it's mm-hmm. about people trying to get back to the point in their lives when maybe they felt most vital where they felt most mm-hmm. themselves where mm-hmm. they felt that they hadn't been kind of had all the corners knocked off them by by life yeah. and in a way but there's something really really admirable but a person trying to take up the guitar in their 50s or you know starting to mm-hmm. do their hair in some way that they used to do it whenever they were whenever they were younger so in a sense in a sense that story fits into that idea as well that um you know why should we judge against this person who um feels that life is just he could have been something else if if maybe he had a better manager, if maybe he had more breaks. He could have been something else, and he feels nostalgic for what he for what he could yeah, have been. So yeah. yeah, that's good. That's good that you didn't feel he was too awful because hopefully nobody that I write about it is really. That reminds me of another one of the stories in the first book, Sweet Home, 
about a woman yeah. who um, becomes infatuated with this kind of old flame who's become quite successful as a journalist and she goes yeah. to try and see him uh, speaking and mm-hmm. it, it turns into like this nightmare you know but she's also trying to rekindle something about her youth mm-hmm. when he was once attracted to her and now mm-hmm. you know he's like she tr- she tries to communicate with him she really obsesses over the communication mm-hmm. and like he's just really you know mm-hmm. almost dismissive <laughs> and like that story mm-hmm. is just oh, heartbreaking yeah. to read you know on the end of it as well again for people who haven't read that story i won't spoil it but it's just like quite devastating <laughs> you know, that story but yeah. again you don't I'm not, when you read those stories, you're not judging people, you know? You know, I think you're not judging people. And, you know, they make these choices and these decisions that maybe you think, oh, goodness, that was so unwise or, you know, that was that was um, just not a good move or, or whatever. But I don't really like it when they end up being described as sort of like these people are ridiculous or these people are cringy mm-hmm. or, or something like that. Because all the time mm-hmm. I'm, tr- I'm trying to produce characters that I think could operate in the real world and um could are fairly reflective of how a lot of people can actually can actually be and so i don't regard her as like an absolutely bizarre freaky character you know as to be honest it's the sort of thing i could do i could see myself doing you know yeah well that's it that's why it's affecting because you can relate you know you can relate to maybe at a certain point in your life uh being vulnerable to falling into that kind of situation you know and um, you know, reading that story kind of reminded me of people, some people I know and stuff, and made me think about some people. And that's it. There's an empathy there, but it is still at the same time. There's a ridiculous um aspect to the behavior, mm-hmm. and I suppose mm-hmm. when people are having midlife crises or whatever, it's embarrassing for other people sometimes to witness. But the person doing it, mm-hmm. you know, is having a good time up to a point. Anyway, <laughs> it's more like when they do the mm-hmm. cliched stuff. I suppose, like the, you know, whatever it is, buying a motorbike or whatever, you know, and, but they're mm-hmm. trying to do something that they didn't do when they were younger that they wish they did. But even, I yeah, know. I mean, you're absolutely right. But even the, the, the buying a motorbike thing, you know, if you then, that seems that, seems that way because you're looking at it from the outside. But if you then had somebody write a story or in some way mediate the person with a motorbike, it would probably seem really kind of uh, moving and kind of, you know, mm. probably feel quite tender towards the person with the motorbike. Do you do you, do you know what I mean? That on on the outside, all yeah. all of these all of these things, I think, can kind of seem, you know, cringy or, or whatever. But mm. if ordinary people are written about in a certain sort of a way it then takes on the dimension mm. of, of something entirely, entirely different. It's like that thing of going around and pretending, just thinking one day, pretending you're in a film, pretending your life's a film, and suddenly everything's got utter <laughs> nuance and it's got meaning and, you know, you, you lift up the mug and suddenly the, oh, the two-pack two mug, um, you lift up, you lift up, you know, something and, and it becomes significant. So whenever you kind of view... Whenever you view your own kind of world as if it's a as if it's a, a, a novel or a short story, everything then becomes mm-hmm. becomes symbolic. And so I think even the stuff, you know, the person buying the motorbike or the person having the affair—that's another one. The, the midlife yeah. crisis and the person goes, "Oh, I've met somebody younger who now understands who I really am." You know, 
all of that you can go what a what a dreadful old cliche but all of that if some somebody wrote about that with some sort of level of skill um mm-hmm. it would be it would we would like the people we would understand the people yeah so making them likable is that something you're trying to do then in all the stories you're trying to make these people relatable i've read i read all the stories in the last couple of weeks i reread sweet home and then i've read the new book dance thank Smooth. you literally just finished it yesterday mm-hmm. and it's great you know all the people in all these stories there isn't really a villain in, in the story any of these stories there's like the, the thing that probably comes closest is the lady and the dog um in the first book maybe the, the lady who's like a teacher who's bigoted but even there it gives mm-hmm. so much background to her that you end up you know, feeling sorry mm-hmm. for her and trying to understand mm-hmm. how she became this person, you know? Yeah, no, I'm not really, it's funny, I'm not really wanting people to be to be likeable as 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 such. It's more that, mm-hmm. that these people feel, people feel real, I think. Um, and I know mm-hmm. that realism is a, you know, I'm not like an unsophisticated person. I know that realism is as much a construct as absolutely anything else, but realism is really the mode in which I'm working. And what I'm trying to do is make people feel as if they're encountering quite real characters. And that actually yeah. means if you want people to seem real, that means means that um, to quite a large extent, you have to make them seem at times quite unlikable. So say, for example, right. in the story um, Golem, You've got a woman um, who, you know, Rhonda, whenever she's finding out that her sister at one point was was sexually assaulted, her attitude Mm -hmm. is kind of, in some ways you could say pretty reprehensible. She's like, gosh, is that all that happened? That's not actually all that big a deal. Um, And, you know, if you're going to get involved in that kind of business, well, par for the course, you know. So she's not that sympathetic. Mm -hmm. And you could say, you know, that's a... That is not a very appealing attitude to hold um, for, right. for a particular character, but that's part of that's part of her relationship. That's part of the whole dynamic of that family, and she sent those terrible things to her sister, and um, yeah. because of a particular kind of because of a particular situation, um, mm-hmm. and so you have to allow these people to be pretty ugly at times. Um, yeah. If they're all just like a delight the whole way through. They they don't they do not seem uh, they they do not seem convincing to uh, to people um, yeah. at all you know and it's funny you know that when you're saying about Olga McClure the one in Lady and Dog in some yeah. ways you know again she's she's quite nasty to the kids that she works with I don't think she seems yeah. a terribly nice teacher at times you know she possibly mm. kills a dog um, <laughs> but at the same time probably. Of of my of my characters, she's probably experienced most heartbreak twice. She so she's lost somebody twice. She's had a she's had a person that she's in, been in love with as a teenager killed, and yet she couldn't tell mm-hmm. anybody about that. She just the circumstances were such that no one could know, and she so she had to suffer loss by herself mm-hmm. as a teenager and keep it a secret. And then she falls in love with the, with a, the wrong person for a second time. Um, and kind of has to keep that a secret yet again because it would be so ridiculous for people to know. So she's also one of the yeah. people that's probably experienced most loss out of out mm-hmm. of anyone. And you know, I've had some people say that that's the, that's the character that they feel most pity for, that they that they felt most yeah. moved by. So I think it's yeah. I think it's just what you're saying there that if you if you think of people as kind of quite complex 
Um, yeah. And you think of people's lives as full of kind of nuance and complication and um, contradiction. That's another thing as well. That most people, I think, as well, are very contradictory yeah. individuals. If you try to build all that into the character, it creates it creates um, constructs essentially because that's what they are. It creates these constructs that seem mm. like real, like real people. Actually, when I read the after I finished rereading the first book, I was trying to think: is there something that kind of unifies all these characters? And I was thinking that across that book, there seems to be that I don't know if you'll agree with this. There seem to be like in some way, sometime in their life, they've been thwarted in some way. Something's happened, or something's happening to them, and it's kind of thwarted them. And I thought one of the things I was going to ask you before I read this, the new book was. Have you ever thought about writing a story where the person is just um, unequivocally happy throughout the story? And then I read the new book and I thought maybe it comes close to when um, Mrs. Dallas Andrew, that story, I thought like she seems like somebody, uh, her life's not perfect, but she seems actually quite happy, <laughs> you know? Um, and I thought that was quite contrasting with the first book. Yeah, Mrs. Do- yeah, I think Mrs. Dolisandro's pretty. I think Mrs. Dolisandro's pretty happy. Um, yeah. really, you know, you've you've got you've got that, and I also think that Lee, the the teenage boy in Buildings Room, on he actually right. he actually goes. He's pretty. He's not a, a a really really unhappy guy. Sure, his marriage splits up, but you know that's one and. What is it? One in three people now. I don't necessarily think that that means that you know people's uh, people are, are ultra miserable. So you know, Lee goes right. along and is basically quite a positive. He makes quite a he's a cheery enough person most of the time, and he also makes a positive impact on on a stranger. So yeah. um, I kind of think that um, I kind of think that that's another person that's not deeply. It's, it's he's not basically locked into into a kind of a you know behaving a certain way because of a past a past trauma um and also i think as well um gloria and max you know gloria gets all my life it's stoical um and max he converts something that was kind of traumatic possibly into a kind of a convenient little anecdote but i don't mm. think that he seems a, a I don't think that he seems necessarily a person who's troubled terribly by what happened. Right. Suppose as well, Neil. What I'm always, you, what I'm always trying to do is the, my my way of working is that it's perfectly possible to tell a story 
where you just, in terms of your chronology, you start because I think I think these two things are linked. Like what you're saying about the sort of happiness or people, you know, there's something in the past that's making them kind of stuck and they can't kind of, you know, progress or whatever. It's kind of linked as well to the way I kind of like to write in terms of time. So I'm always running, nearly always running two or three different timelines simultaneously, sometimes maybe even four. So I'll have like a present, I'll have a present timeline and it might not be present tense, but it's kind of like the uppermost timeline. And then I'll have like um, maybe a, a more recent past and then maybe even a couple of distant pasts. And those things are all informing each other. So I'm always, I'm trying to make it, always use the analogy it's like a dj it's like a mix you're trying to do it so people don't see the joins so you're trying to move constantly between all these different time periods without people really noticing and so what i'm always thinking about how is the past sense how is the past informing the the present you know um yeah i suppose that cover the cover for the sting and fly edition of the new book is like this alice meyer woodcut and it's like Mm -hmm. it's like this woman it's sort of like tina turner person outline bending over but it's like with her hair all hanging down but it's like when you look at it it's just like the rings and rings and rings inside the the, inside like a tree trunk or whatever um yeah like that because it's it's again suggesting that whole idea that you're just made up made up made up of these past experiences that the self is just basically a kind of um you know it's just basically addition after addition of past experience to form an identity, you know? I think the story where that really struck me in this new book is the story Cell, where um, mm-hmm. the, it's the probably the longest story you've written, I think. It is. Um, it's really long. Yeah, it's about, yeah. maybe it's about 11,000 words or so, yeah. That story really stuck with me. Like, it really, it's quite a disturbing story. and um, But it's the way it layers past and present kind of blurs things in the timeline a bit Mm -hmm. it takes you a while to orientate yourself in the story and i think it kind of mirrors the kind of way that somebody can be insidiously drawn into a really dysfunctional toxic kind of situation which is what happens to the character um Mm -hmm. i don't know if you would agree with that yeah no i agree with yeah i agree with everything you're saying yeah i mean Yes, Cell, for, for anybody that doesn't know this, it's basically a woman that was drawn into a kind of a Marxist cult. Um, and it starts off like reasonably well-intentioned, but as kind of like key members drop out of it or, or die, um, the balance of it changes and it becomes much more under the control of people that end up being very, very tyrannical and very dictatorial. And it then becomes something really sinister. Um, and I just, I just kind of find that pretty interesting, you know, that whole idea of how, how, I mean, how this happens, um, how yeah. how dynamics are within homes just generally, but how whenever it's something much more extreme than this, that than the home, how this then occurs, and I think it was in the the cozy um autobiography, and she's saying about you know Genesis P origin, you know, talking about um throbbing gristle and talking about you know how dictatorial he was in terms of they all had to watch new faces and it was just so bizarre (laughs) it was just so it it was just so crazy in a way and it's the same sort of it's the same sort of thing same sort of thing here um Mm -hmm. so yeah that was the kind of that was the kind of thing that i was i was interested in but i wanted to ask you you know that whole idea of i'm always trying to as much as i possibly can neil i suppose 
um, assume that I've got an intelligent reader and that at times I'm not going to spell things out and I'm going to I'm going to just just very, very slowly kind of drip feed in certain ideas or, you know, it might not be from the first two pages. It's clear who's who or what the relation is. Um, yeah. And I'm always thinking, you know, what, what can I, what, when do I need to spell it out to a reader or, you yeah. know, how far can I let it go that I let people make their own kind of connections? And I wondered, like, do you ever find that annoying? You know, when you're reading, say, um, somebody like me, that... Um, no, I don't find it annoying. I find it, I, I think th that story was one where I kind of drifted into it from this previous story and I kind of wasn't, mm -hmm. I, it kind of took me slightly by surprise, but it, nothing about the way it was structured annoyed me. It was more just actually, I thought the way it was done was really well balanced because, um, it totally took me off guard that story so by the end of it i was like really and i kept thinking about it i'm still thinking about that story because i think it slightly relates does it to maybe a true life story something that happened there mm -hmm. was something similar i think happened in london a few years ago and then i went back and looked into that and um but i think the way that particular story is balanced um mm -hmm. is done really well i think if it was done mm -hmm. badly I, what i don't like is things being spelled out you know, and making it too obvious. I kind of like that slight confusion because if, you, mm -hmm. if, if you're mm -hmm. in the hands of somebody who knows what they're doing, then you should be able to trust that and go, well, eventually this is going to start making sense to me or whatever. And there's, I think there's a key bit in that story where you just go, oh, hang on. <laughs> there's like, well, I can't even remember what it is now, but there's like a line or a direction in it where you just feel like, okay, I know what this is. I know what's going on here. <laughs> And also, I think with her character, when you go back and read it um, from the start, it's like, clearly she's not right. I think, you know, from the beginning, she's got something maybe a bit missing in terms of the way she interacts with other people. And so she was maybe slightly vulnerable to this happening to her. Yeah, that whole idea of trust, I think, is a really, for me as a reader, because I mean, I would be a, a reader as much as I'm a writer. Um, and for, for me, that you're absolutely right. That whole idea of trust is kind of the the important thing. Whenever you can relax into a story or a novel, you can kind of think, right, I don't understand this at present. I don't see how it's connecting, but I trust that that the that the meaning or the pattern or, or whatever mm -hmm. it is will will become will become apparent. You know, and I suppose that trust that I'm I, I hope that people can trust me not and, and I hope I can trust a reader because I suppose it's a very reciprocal thing. You know, I hope that I can trust a reader that I don't need to spell things out in terms of dialogue that people understand mm -hmm. that so and so saying this, but in fact means something else um, mm -hmm. that so and so is declaring this, but in fact what they actually are thinking is something entirely different. So I'm kind of trusting yeah. a reader that they are they are seeing this as as more than just than just the words on the page, I suppose. Um, yeah. And that, I suppose my analogy that I use all the time for the short story, I've started using this analogy all the time, um, is that I think the way the short story works is kind of like a spider's web, not in the sense that you're trapped in it or something like that, but it, it's a, it's like a spider's web in the sense, and this was like a metaphor um, 
George Eliot used to describe like relationships in early stages, that there's actually not much there. Um, if you look at the actual substance of it, it could be crushed down to not much in the sense that a short story is also like that. But mm-hmm. the reason the structure op- operates and the reason it works is because of the spaces in between it. So, And the spaces are as kind of essential to the structure as the... Um, as the actual material, um, and so with a short right. story, what you're what you're hoping a, a reader is going to do a lot is supply a lot themselves, and possibly supply a lot more than um, a, than a novel than if they were reading a novel. Yeah, filling in the gaps. I think um, yeah, people from Belfast with your books, I feel like we have a slight advantage it, it, with that kind of thing, just because of the locality of the stories. Mm-hmm. One of the things I really enjoy about your stories is how they're all based here. And mm-hmm. when I'm reading them in the same way that when you're reading a story and you kind of visualize a character, I always would mm-hmm. have an idea in, in my mind of what somebody looks like when I'm reading about mm-hmm. a story. Um, mm-hmm. I quite often with your books, I'm thinking about the actual locations. Sometimes you actually say where it is, like you'll name mm-hmm. a street or a road or something. And other mm-hmm. times you'll sort of give directions um mm-hmm. so there's like and i there's a few stories there like buildings buildings woman i don't know if i'm pronouncing that properly yeah. but yeah that's right there's a few that's stories right. where I, there's a few stories where i'm like i know where that is where her house is i have in my mind's eye yeah, yeah. i can actually <laughs> think where that is and then also in mm-hmm. cell where she ends up being in this uh when she's in belfast i'm like i'm pretty sure i know where that is um, where do you think it is ma- where do you think it is where I thought she lived, right, was, mm-hmm. do you know, on the upper Craiga Road where the roundabout is, mm-hmm. roundabout there, somewhere <laughs> yep. around there. Is that where it is? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, 100%. Yep, that's you. That's right. Yep. Totally. There you go. Absolutely. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. there you go. And, um, but that's, that's kind of the <laughs> joy of fun. being from here and recognizing all these places. And then also in the story, um, Gloria and Max were, you know, mm-hmm. he's driving her up the Antrim coast. And I'm like, that really mm-hmm. reminded me of a trip I took last summer and went up one of those sort of streets, that, like roads, like an A road that just kind of spirals uphill off to the left, mm-hmm. off the coast road. And I could totally mm-hmm. visualize, you know, where that would have mm-hmm. occurred. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I think from when you're from here, you have that slight advantage over other readers, maybe because. Mm-hmm. It's just fun. It's kind of the fun of reading your stories, I think, partly when you're from Belfast and from Northern mm-hmm. Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I almost feel slightly sorry for people from somewhere else who don't who aren't able to fill those blanks in. But I guess they can use their own cities to fill those spaces in for themselves, you know? That's that's exactly. So with, with that, Gloria and Max, that's exactly the sort of thing where I imagined you're going up along the coast and then you take one of those roads up off it. I suppose the pleasures that there are in reading are so kind of, the pleasures that there are are so sort of diverse. And I think that for some people, that's that's definitely something that's kind of quite enjoyable. Maybe looking to think of where whereabouts um was that was that set or people sometimes mm-hmm. enjoy hearing little expressions maybe they think oh they hadn't seen a particular expression in a book before you know some little belfast phrase or, or whatever and so there's yeah. there's all those specific things that can be kind of quite nice to uh can be kind of quite nice to, to see um mm-hmm. 
And yeah, and sometimes there'll be things as well that I'll think to myself, um, somebody looking in might might have made a sort of an assumption, I suppose, that I would say uh-huh. maybe isn't maybe isn't quite correct. So say for example, say the gun and build like there's, there's a gun and buildings room and I don't think that's a big revelation or spoiler, but there's a gun, there's a gun. And it's like an anti Chekhov right. thing, because you know the way Chekhov says well says said about, you know, if a gun's in a story, the gun better go off. Do you know do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? You know that that idea yeah. that, you know, if you're gonna include yeah. a detail like that, you're kind of well well in my story there's a gun and the gun never never does go off and the whole point is the gun can't go off. Um yeah. but or the gun shouldn't go off. But you know, I didn't imagine that gun was anything to do with paramilitaries. I imagined that gun was something to do with kind of gangland and was to do with like um, maybe drug deals, was to do with kind of criminals, okay? That mm-hmm. that wasn't something mm-hmm. to do with paramilitaries necessarily. Um, so I didn't see the gun as some big symbol that, you know, even in a post-conflict world, the gun is still there. I, I imagine yeah. that was, yeah, the gun is still there, but it's part of organised crime, racketeering, all that, it's not necessarily mm-hmm. something to do with um, political conflict, right. you know? But if, if maybe you still think of, if, if you think of, 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 of this place as entirely just about that type of conflict, then, you know, maybe yeah. the gun becomes becomes something different. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a story in the new book, because uh, I was thinking about this as well, that some of these new stories they're um they're more open-ended in the way they end they they don't Mm -hmm. necessarily resolve in the same Mm -hmm. way that the stories in sweet home do but that's one of the stories that does kind of have a a payoff kind of thing at the Mm -hmm. end it feels like there's a payoff and Mm -hmm. i felt like the stories in sweet home were like that they 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 kind of uh circle back to something uh from the beginning quite often or Mm -hmm. there'd be some kind of resolution towards the end of those mm-hmm. stories and then these stories mm-hmm. feel more open-ended a bit more like kind of like they're totally different from somebody like Raymond Carver but mm-hmm. they have that kind of slight you know that they'll just stop some in a moment somewhere do you know what I mean mm-hmm. like that story it's the one about the couple mm-hmm. who are kind of fantasizing about their in-laws mm-hmm. <laughs> that mm-hmm. one yeah yeah that one kind of just ends like that we're in a moment but mm-hmm. it has this, it kind of th- has this, and that kind of reminded me about Raymond Carver, the way some of his mm-hmm. stories just end on this balanced kind of image. I think endings in relation to short stories are really kind of quite, they're kind of quite interesting. And there's all sorts of, um, like a short stories need one of your things. Are you really into short stories? Um, I do like short stories. And I used to read a lot of short stories when I was a bit younger. Like I was big into Raymond Carver. John yeah. Cheever, people like that, and still yeah. dip into them. That's what I like about short stories. You can just what I really love about a book of short stories is you just pick it up anywhere in the book and just start a story. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but I've kind of let myself lapse a bit from it in recent years, and and so I was really glad to get you know to read your stories mm-hmm. for this again and get back into reading short stories because it made me remember all the stuff that I used to read, you know what I mean? And why mm. I really love short stories. Yeah, I mean, I suppose with 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 short stories there's all sorts of there's all sorts of ways people think um short stories should end. And you've got that thing, you know, it's a bit of a cliche there should be a sort of at that moment. 
moment of epiphany, you know, this moment of realization that there's some sort of turn or whatever in the, in the short story. Um, and I, I got to mm. say, I'm not mad keen in short stories where the meaning resides in the ending, if that makes sense. You know, that yeah. suddenly in the last two paragraphs, everything now slots into slots into place. I actually feel quite cheated by a story like that whenever, whenever I read yeah. one. So um, as much as possible, I'm avoiding that type of short story. However, if you produce a short story that is utterly inconclusive um, and that mm-hmm. has got seems to have no pattern, I also think that that can be done brilliantly, but that also runs the risk of being a not very satisfying reading experience because people are just like, well, what the hell? You know, what was yeah. what was what was that about? You know, it's not actually yeah. a story as such. It's just like it's just like you know maybe mood writing or you know. I don't know. You could call it short fiction. Um, so I'm trying to write endings that um, are in some way, some way also have a projection of future time because I kind of like the idea of that for a reader that um, what's also what's also necessary is that the reader considers what they think might continue um, once the action of the actual story is stopped because obviously it's... it's right. Of course, of course, you're in control, but it's also as well totally arbitrary where you decide to to end these things, um, yeah. and it's interesting for the reader to be able to take it to be able to take it on uh, to be able to take it on further. Yeah. When you're writing a story, say a shorter one of the shorter stories that's like, mm-hmm. um, say because I've had to read Dance Move on an e-reader and I haven't got the physical copy of it yet, right? But yeah. some of them would be like a ten minute read or whatever. Like Mrs. Dallas mm-hmm. Andrews, like a ten minute read. A story like that, mm-hmm. how long does it take to draw do a first draft like that of a of a shorter story? Could it be a day or like, you know? Um right, so the so the way it would the way it would work would be, right? I I never know. Whenever I start off, I never know how long the final story's gonna be. Um, I wouldn't really have any idea about that just at the beginning. So my first draft, Neil, is always the same thing. I just write without any restriction whatsoever and just take it, just take as long as I, I need to deal with what I'm thinking about at that particular moment in time. So say, for example, um, maybe the Mrs. D'Alessandro first draft might have been 12, 13,000 words. Um, it might have been longer than um, it might have been longer than say something like Cell is in the actual in the actual book. So I initially right. don't really have much of an idea at all, um, and that's fun. See that first draft? It's so much fun because you're writing with no restriction. You can move it around all over the place. The the, the character you're trying to get to know. You're essentially just trying to get to know the character, and that takes quite long. That takes quite a long time for for me. Um, yeah. And then after that first draft, kind of looking at it and thinking, what is there there? Is there anything there that is uh, that is interesting? What what is it that really that story seems to be dealing with? And quite a lot of the time, stuff that seems totally peripheral ends up that that needs to come to the center, and other things that are quite central end up needing to be totally, totally, just totally cut. So mm-hmm. then I write it again, and by that stage, it'll probably go down. I'll drop two thirds of it, maybe or even more, um, mm. and then um, you know just refine it down and down from from then. So something that ends up. I'm trying to think how long. Uh, I love that. I love hearing that Mrs. D'Alessandro is a ten minute read. That's cool. Um, that's just based on my reading speed, I suppose. Um, yeah, no, that's great. No, I love it. I love it. Um, so that would mean that something like Mrs. D'Alessandro 
be end up maybe it's it's short for me two thousand five hundred words or whatever. But yeah, that would have yeah. that would have ended up being quadruple five times that originally. Right, right. Because I noticed in the first book, um, Sweet Home, most of the stories are kind of very similar length, and I was wondering because of the way that book might have been written. Um, because I don't know, just to go back for a second to a biographical side of things, just. I was reading that when you started writing the stories for that book, you were, mm -hmm. you got some time or like an afternoon off a week or something. And you were mm -hmm. starting to write stories in that time. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if, mm -hmm. you know, that's related to, you know, you had a sort of metered set and what you would be like, I'm going to write 20,000 words or whatever. Yeah. In the first book, uh, To All Their Jews is a long story. So it's, it's maybe about 9,000 words or so. It's pretty, it's pretty long. And then, um, mm. the other short one in that one is Locksmiths and it's only about 3,000 words, but most of the others are about 6,000. And 6,000 words for me is just a really, it's my magic length because with 6,000, yeah. I kind of just understand the rhythm. There's just rhythms, even though even though stories can be very very different. There's just rhythms to them, and how and what sort of needs to happen when. And so six thousand mm -hmm. is the number that I feel happiest with, just because I know how to pace it, and I know, I know how that just needs to feel basically. And so, yeah. um, I'm trying to think in this. So yes, in this book, um, mathematics, um, dance move, buildings, Roman. Momentum Mori, Secrets Mori. Most of these are six. Most of these are six thousand. Um, the one that's yeah. not is one that was actually kept kept back. So Cell was actually due to go into um Sweet Home, but I actually kept oh, it right. back because I, I thought I might want to do more work on it, but I didn't really. And then the shorter right. stories. So his mother and Gloria and Max, they were ones that mm -hmm. were actually on Radio Four. And so for Radio Four, they need to be they need to be shorter, um. And right. so those were ones that were that were used because were put in because they they would they'd been in Radio Four. But I wouldn't have just put them in just because they've been in Radio Four because, you know, ultimately, no. you know, so what? Um, they are actually they are actually stories that you know that work you know there's there's stories that i've had stories i've had other places that i haven't actually put into the the collection you know Hey, so hope you enjoyed that uh, first part of my conversation with Wendy Erskine. Part two will be available uh, next week. So thanks again for listening and thank you to Wendy for taking the time to speak to me. It was amazing to be able to speak to her, uh, especially having just read both her books back to back to then be able to have that conversation with her was an insane privilege. So thank you, Wendy. You can follow this podcast in all the usual places. Please do. Please leave reviews and rate the podcast and all that jazz. And I'll see you next time. Take care. Bye bye. Yeah.